Welcome to the Curiosity Solution. I'm your host, Beverly Beal. Join us as we explore the science of curiosity, share stories of people who've used curiosity to improve their lives, and maybe inspire some aha moments along the way. Welcome, welcome. Hi, Shelly. I am so grateful to have my good friend and absolutely just amazing human, Michelle Delane. Thank you so much for joining me in the studio today. Um, so I met Shelly back when she was running a co-working studio or co-work station or station. It's not a station, co-working space. I know it starts with an S, you know. One of those words. It's fine. One of those words. Um, and it was called Orange Coworking. And if you noticed the um, piece that I had, like on, on that little intro uh, and in any of the marketing materials, I have little orange slices all over as kind of an homage to the, honestly the magical space that she created there. She, she, she opened the space that attracted the... Uh, I mean, just the uniqueness of the individuals that came to this particular place, uh, in my viewpoint, has been unparalleled. And not only that, uh, it was the community that you created. Sadly, like many things, um, the pandemic um, provided an opportunity for her to explore other ways of creating community. Um but that doesn't mean that we can't all still just cherish and and glorify <laughs> the memory of orange. So, Shelly, talk to me a little bit about what was the whole. I mean, obviously, you you had a reason for starting a co working space. Um, can you walk us a little bit into you know the the thought process behind even you know going into that direction? let alone how you actually did it. Sure. I, I haven't talked about the origin story for Orange in a long time. <laughs> That's so fun. Um, so I had moved to Austin and was working from home. I did a lot of freelance graphic design and brand strategy and that sort of thing. And I was working from home. And at the time, my daughter was quite small and so my days were filled with my computer and my child, and I didn't interact with a whole lot of new people. And I was mm. craving a place where I could have adult interactions. Oh, and yes, peopling. Peopling. And every time I would meet neighbors, I would find that there were a lot of other people in my neighborhood who had the same challenge as I did. And one of the things that really sparked me heading down that path. Oh, and I had been in co-working communities in other places that I've lived in. Ah. So I was familiar with the general idea. Um, there just wasn't one in our neighborhood, in our anywhere in our vicinity. And I met two neighbors separate times at the park across the street. One of them did front-end web design and worked from home. The other did back-end web design and worked from home. They were both facing a challenge where they had big projects that needed skills that they themselves didn't have and their personal network didn't include somebody who could fill the gap. And I was like, did you talk to your neighbor? <laughs> nope, probably not. <laughs> And it's one of those, like, people don't always talk about their professions with neighbors. So you don't know what incredible resources mm -hmm. are around you. And the social rules around even asking that can be weird. So I'm like, yeah. seriously, these two people have lived next to each other for five years. Their home office windows are, like, directly across from each other. They're like... <laughs> 20 feet apart, and they had no idea that they were the solution to each other's problem. Wow. Wow. Right. And in perfect alignment with the theme of your whole endeavor here, the only reason I knew that is because I'm always curious about people and who they are and what they're up to and what challenges they're facing and all of those. So, like, 
I have those interactions with people. So I, I'm the one who found out you do this and you need this, you do this and you need this. And those pieces fit together. Isn't that the best when those pieces, you find those pieces and it's like, oh my gosh, I get just such chill bumps whenever I am able to also facilitate that kind of connection. Again, which is the whole reason why I'm even doing this podcast, because I know that there are more people out there who also just revel in knowing and in finding out that how can I help other people? And it kind of goes along too with, with the, one of the things that came up a lot during Orange, and that was so many people don't share what's going on with them. And they end up finding themselves in this loneliness, this cycle of loneliness. Um, so, you know, as you were making Orange be Orange, I always was appreciative of just the organic nature of asking questions of, you know, saying, hey, what, what you working on? What do you need? And um, how is now, now that you are, uh, out. So, so let's kind of back up a little bit. When you were still at Orange, um, you did many different things to help build community. Of those things that you did there, how many of those have you found to be um, still valid and, and viable outside of a co-working community? That's an interesting question. I will say that the primary thing I did there, honestly, I still do. And I did before then. And that is if I encounter anyone, whether it's a friend that I know a lot or it's someone that I've just met, I always want to know what their story is. What's your mm -hmm. story? I always want to know. So I'm always listening for like, what's your story? And embedded in those stories is always something that they're missing and something that they have in abundance and so still I connect people I just and I've gotten more relaxed in a way about that orange helped me with that I used to be very like specific about okay I met this person and these are all the things you need to know about them and this is exactly why you two should connect and now I'm a little more, I allow for more of their own curiosity and discovery because I find that sometimes that places fewer limitations on the connection and the building of community. Because sometimes they find points of connection that I would not have even anticipated because I had never run into them. So it's more now, I know there's a reason for you to connect. I give you the vague outline. Talk if you want to. You know, and I actually um, found that, you know, I, I, I noticed how you would do that there. And it really isn't until right now when you are really putting words to it that I realized that is how I've been connecting people. It's like, okay, here's these, this one little thing. You two have this in common. Go play. <laughs> Go talk. <laughs> um and, and I, you know, again, I, I just saw how many times um, that approach, it built businesses, it forged relationships, it, it, it transformed realities. Um, and, and it's, again, one of those things that I, I just was always so amazed at how deftly you personally were able to to facilitate that and you modeled that for others to to be able to do the same thing um now you had mentioned that you were at home doing graphic design work and you know kind of just there with your kid and and the and, and the computer and and the work what are you doing these days now that you're not at the at, at having this this physical space that you're you're maintaining? So I found myself post pandemic, um, partly because of orange and partly because I got so steeped there in the joy of being part of something with other people. 
I found that doing freelance design work and solo work didn't fit very well anymore. So I went looking for a larger effort and team to join. And I wound up at a startup. Cool. Tell us some more about that. How has that been? It's been fascinating, frankly. It's been, it's been fascinating. <laughs> it's been a whole new chapter of personal growth and learning in the best possible way. So it's a company called Pinwheel. We make a parent-managed smartphone for kids. And my official title is Chief Mom. Oh, my God. Are you kidding me? That's, that's a great title. Actually, my title. If you look on LinkedIn, that's actually my title now. That is, which, that is great. Which I kind of feel like it should have been at Orange also. It just hadn't occurred to me yet. Um, <laughs> it's okay. I own it now. Um, and it's been fascinating because it's been great to be part of a team effort. Like people together taking on a single problem in the world and people who are very different than I am often um, and just approaching togethering from a completely different angle. Um, it's also taught me a lot more about listening mm. and not because at Orange, don't get me wrong, I love having answers for people and being able to provide something that they need and being able to help. Um, but it's been an interesting journey to be in a context where there are things that we do that I don't have any idea how to do. There's a lot of the technical nuts and bolts that I'm like, no idea, can't help, no clue. I cannot help with this part. But I can tell yeah. you, who can. you know, but like just being in the like, I'm not the sole hub through which things flow. And I don't even connect with everybody that's on our team. Mm. So it's just, it's a very different sort of perspective on a group of people doing things at a whole. Um, so yeah, that's been an interesting thing. And yet, I still think that, to me, you know, the mission of keeping children safe from online predators is is a huge mission. And, you know, I, you, you, so far, the way that I've known you has always been around some type of a larger mission. Now, uh, has that always been something that you've just found yourself gravitating towards, or is this something that you have evolved into? It's a good question. You know, <laughs> I think, honestly, I have always been wired to think about things on a macro level and on a systemic level, because it's one thing, and I love, I love like the interactions that happen between two people, tiny little things, the day-to-day, -day, the like micro things. Like at Orange, I always loved like getting to witness like two people who would just like strike up a conversation by the coffee pot and like the magic that happens in these ordinary little moments, tiny little things in daily life and like analyzing those to death. Like I love that stuff. And there were some interesting conversations around that coffee pot. <laughs> oh, for sure. Like that could be a whole book, frankly. The orange coffee pot, it's a whole thing. Um, but I've always been fascinated by what happens in the world when there is an accumulation of decisions that have been made by individuals over time that add up to a thing that no one person has any control over. It's just sort of the zeitgeist of the way a system operates or the way the society is. Or... And so being able to like see the accumulation of all those little things and that and looking at the leverage points along the way for like, well, if you want to shift this, what do you have to change? If you want to shift this, mm -hmm. what do you, where do you have to stand and what do you have to change? So the fulcrum points of change, whether it's interpersonal or macro systems level. 
So where do you see the, as you say, the zeitgeist going right now? I mean, obviously you are immersed in, you know, you had been immersed in uh, creating a, a space for, for other, for those little micro connections. And now you're immersed in a space that is very much uh child focused but also adult focused because they have to be connecting outside of that because you are one of those visionaries what do you see is the next big shift that's happening Mm. I know. Another good question. So many things you do. <laughs> Excellent. This is why I love you in general. Like your curiosity comes up with quite fun questions. It's um, kind of annoying to people who are not ready for it though. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, you're making me think. Ah. Yes, but you know, as anyone who knows me know, I can overthink a Q-tip. So, you know, giving me a thought-provoking question is my favorite. Oh, good. Um, because it keeps me from overthinking Q-tips. Um, so one of the things that I've been contemplating a lot in the last few months, um, with the rise of AI and the WGA and SAG strikes and a lot of the things that are happening in the world right now, there's a really interesting question that we're going to need to grapple with. And I'm hoping that enough people are aware of this conversation to engage in it, because otherwise we may end up somewhere that we did not want to go. And the question is around, what is the self? Who are we as individuals? And what rights do we have over our own person. And I say that because there are writers who are concerned that AI has been trained on their style of writing and there's deep fake video and audio technology that can take a person and clone them and create mm -hmm. something that in a digital space is virtually indistinguishable from the person themselves. Like even Stephen Fry, who is such a distinctive individual, he found out recently that they had used, and I say they because I don't remember exactly who it was. It might have been Paramount. Don't quote me on that. I'd have to look it up to fact check myself on who it was. But someone who produces Universal, I guess, who produces Harry Potter related stuff had cloned his voice and used it to generate like audio narration for some Harry Potter related things without his knowledge or consent. And not paying him, of course. Bingo. So his agents are on it and they're horrified and they're fighting it and all of that. But at the same time, there was also this last week, there was a, a woman on either TikTok or Instagram who is a professional influencer who had been approached by a startup that will clone you into a digital AI avatar, your voice, your mannerisms, your everything, so that it can do video job interviews for you. Hmm. She refused and was horrified by it, both for the ethical reasons. And she also looked into it a bit more and she's like, mm. and it's owned by a shady entity out of the Middle East. Mm. What could an AI company do in the social media sphere heading into an election year with clones of influencers who have millions of viewers and you know regular everyday people in you know professional attire because it's for job interviews can't imagine what somebody could repurpose that into oh my gosh and again we're rapidly approaching the point at which in the digital sphere it can be very difficult to distinguish something that is genuine from something that is created 
And <laughs> because we all have a self and there are now profits that can be made and world changing propaganda that can be deployed using our likeness and voice mm -hmm. and words and thoughts. And right now, there is not a lot of legal framework or precedent to prevent that from happening. And I think it's something we need to grapple with. Oh, I agree completely. <clears throat> then again, we also have a Congress that can't seem to quite even understand that, no, you can't really ban TikTok in just one state. It doesn't work like that. Well, yes, but, you know, they are also currently at the point where they don't seem to understand that you have to pay people to take the trash out at national parks and it's their job to make sure those people get paid. Yep. It's a, you know, there's a lot of, yeah. So many things, so 100%. many things. 100%. But you know what, it, again, the AI companies, those who are already doing don't you think they have at this point the the onus should be on them to almost do some self-policing adding like a little tag saying yes this is a an ai augmented re, uh, video so to a certain <laughs> extent some companies are starting to do that um tiktok actually speaking of is i believe adding a generated by ai tag but here's the thing this is a global issue. This isn't just a domestic issue. It's true. And any tagging that relies on the creator to tag may or may not be trustworthy in and of itself. Mm. Like there's uh, Tristan Harris, who runs the center or co-founded the Center for Humane Technology. One of the things that he has called for is sort of an international arms agreement around AI. Whether or not that can even be accomplished, I don't know, but I agree with his thinking on it because there's a lot of sentiment around, well, but if we don't, well, the Chinese will, and then where will we be? <laughs> exactly. So it's a complicated thing, but I think the reason I come back to contemplating the self and what rights we think we each have to our own identity as a created work. Because it really is, like, if you think about it, the argument has always been that the only people who control their own image and likeness in mm -hmm. photographs and in other things are people who specifically make a living from their likeness. Okay. Yeah, you're right. But I think there's another ground to stand on that in that we are all each a sum of our choices through life, that the self is a created work, whether or not we ourselves leverage that for profit. And so I don't think, I think that there's a, a ground that we could collectively stand on that no one else has the right to duplicate ourself and use it without compensation to us. Like if somebody were to clone you and I knowing you could tell it was meant to be you without them telling me who it was based on, they don't have, they shouldn't have the right to do that. You know, I actually was approached on Instagram by some artist who was <clears throat> wanting to get my permission to do like a, I don't know exactly what, I mean, she, it's kind of like a stylized portrait. And then oh, they, cool. they was like, Oh, you're on the one we'll pay you. And I'm you know, I've got this commission and I'm like, no, I'm okay. No, thank you. No, you, you don't have my permission. You know, it was just, I don't know, but there was something kind of like, especially right. when she showed me the picture that she wanted to, to do with me. I mean, it was a fine one, but it was like, really? I don't know. That's right. But no. And my point is you should absolutely have that choice. Right. You well, I mean, Germany. Choice. 
Yeah, I mean, the thing about with, you know, like, first of all, the EU, they they are at least addressing what's going on with, you know, the data ownership, the ownership of, of your data. Totally. And in, I love that in Germany, you have the right to be forgotten. Yes, that's so important. Oh, my gosh, that's so important. Anybody who's from a small town can tell you how important that is. Oh, my God. I've been, uh, yeah, I grew up in a small town. I mean, we know, we know. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I was. Like, yeah, there's so many reasons. Like the, and especially, and I'm surprised that we don't get this more in America because in America, especially, the right to start over, to reinvent yourself, to have a clean slate has been such a part of our heritage. Like, oh, but not if you have, not if you have a jail, not if you have a, 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 well, a felony, right? You're, even, you're hosed forever. Yeah. But even that I'm like, that's been an issue that I'm like, but in our early years, like all the people who moved from the East coast and took the Oregon trail or something out West and started over and adopted a brand new name and a new identity and started over like things like that can be so good. I mean, lame is, come on. Um, <laughs> like from the beginning of humanity, the right to be forgotten and the right to decide who you are now and to evolve and change, like that's, it's a thing. And to have control over how you are portrayed anywhere. Because one of the issues with kids right now in the realm of technology and this is partly due to parents oversharing. Everybody blames the teenagers for like posting selfies, but I promise you a lot of this issue is parents doing it. And that is kids who find their likeness has been digitally inserted into hardcore pornography. <gasps> what? I'm not kidding. And then they are shown this footage by someone who it's called sextortion. So they are shown this image that appears very much to be them naked or engaging in something sexual. And oh they God, are horrific. And they are told that if they don't either provide other images of themselves or send money or do something, these images of them will be distributed to their family and their school. Oh my God. Incidents of this are up three hundred percent in the last six months oh my god that makes me sick yes it should it should it's horrifying but like it's all part and part but when even when parents find out about this or kids report this to someone there's almost no legal recourse mm. because there is no protection for your likeness or yourself your identity can be stolen and repurposed and fighting that is really nebulous right now. So that's why I'm like, we need a collective umbrella like copyright that's very clear that if it is your likeness and someone can tell it's you and you did not give permission for that to be used, you should have some form of recourse. Sounds to me like... This is a, a bill waiting to find the right sponsor in, in the legislation. Um, I wonder how, how best to go about doing that. This is another piece of curiosity. I right? may have to, I may have to have a, you cannot talk to, to some other folks that perhaps we can make something happen here. There could be some little like sparks zinging around but you're right having the legal considering especially living here in texas everything seems to be focused around that rugged individualism that you know i am you know don't don't tread on me and all of that good stuff but what i'm hearing you say is that because we don't have ownership over our likeness we can essentially be cloned and sent out there to do things without knowledge, uh, permission, or even against our will. Mm -hmm. That doesn't sound like a very American ideal. This is my point. Precisely. I mean, I, I think we could probably get, um, we could probably all agree 
on this topic right, right here. Exactly. Look at you. See, bringing the world, bringing this country <laughs> back together single-handedly. Shelly, I love it. Oh my gosh. That is the best. Oh, it is a, yeah, it's, it's, um, it's, it, this is a very big issue. Okay. So that's the, and so you, you believe that's the, the, the main focus that we're all kind of moving towards. Yeah. There's a, gosh, there's so many smaller issues in the world and, and side issues, but a lot of them for me come back to that central point around mm -hmm. shifting from seeing the self as something that just is. And so you can't have any rights to it because it just, you just are, you just exist. You just are, God made you that way, or you just, you exist. But if we can see ourselves as an act of creation, think about all the shifts that that could engender. You know, again, you, you talk about, you know, that we just are, we exist as God made us. That, in, that then in, assumes that there is something besides just the meat suit that we're in and that there is a soul and that an AI creation does not have a soul. So how does one go about not really legislating a soul, but that's kind of what's happening. That's what you, what really is what it, we'd end up having to move towards. Well, and I think the only thing we can, like I, that, you know, I would love to have like, you know, the sovereign soul as part of our constitution. That'd be awesome. Sovereign soul. But see, that gets a little bit close to that whole sovereign citizen movement. Well, which no, is a I, little, uh... Yes, I know, but that's <laughs> almost intentional on my part because that's a movement that I think that's, that's another thing that I'm so curious about because there's so many things in it that I'm like, oh, I follow you, to, but then you make this leap and I can't quite get there. But how did you get there? That's so interesting. Like, it's so, I'm so fascinated by it because I'm like, okay, if I squint and look at it this way, I can sort of see your point. <laughs> but then there's a whole leap there that I can't quite bridge. So for the people listening who may not be as familiar with that particular viewpoint, can you like in a nutshell, get, get talk, talk us through the point where you get, you understand and then where they, where you get lost. If so, you want to, I mean, if you want to, you can, you can certainly defer and go like, yeah, that's not a, it's not a topic I yeah, want to I feel have like out we there. should maybe not go down that rabbit hole, but I will yeah. say my, the, the disconnect for me, and this is not by any means, all people who have gone down the sovereign citizen path. Um, but one of the disconnects for me in some instances is people who believe themselves to be sovereign with no moral or ethical or practical ties to the rest of humanity, that they have no concern for anyone other than themselves. And one of the things that I learned from Burning Man, of all places, that rings better for me is there there's very much an ethic and one of the core principles is of a radical self-reliance that you're going out to a hostile environment and you're expected to bring everything you need to sustain yourself in that environment for a week you are supposed to be prepared for anything you can't buy stuff out there you can't you just there's no stores nearby you have to bring everything with you and you are responsible for cleaning it all up and taking it with you, including your trash and everything else when you leave. Radical self-reliance. You are expected to be self-sufficient. But at the same time, there is a culture of incredible generosity because no matter how organized and prepared and how much forethought and how much you follow all of the guidelines and packing lists and all the things, no one is ever prepared for every eventuality. As, as evidenced by this last uh, time with all the rain. Well, and 
I will tell you the people I know who were out there and who do practice radical self-reliance, they hunkered down with each other. They shared resources. They had a grand old time, waited till the playa dried out and then left. It was fine. But the people it, who did not practice radical yeah. self-reliance or who did not lean into community generosity are the people who struggled. And again, we come back to building community and yes, realizing that we do. are not, exactly, we are not the islands that um No man is an people, island. John Dunn wasn't lying. I forget what song that's from, but it's still uh, true. <laughs> um, and again, it kind of comes back to one of the pieces that I remember being a huge discussion at Orange and was continued to be uh, elevated on the national consciousness by the, um, was it uh, Vivek Murthy? Um, mm -hmm. uh, he was the um, Obama's uh, Surgeon General. And mm -hmm. he was back then talking about the loneliness epidemic, which again is being foisted on and 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 uh exacerbated by uh social media and the comparison culture and how the teens especially around my kids age where you know we didn't know what was going to be happening with all of this mm -mm. and and how it's you know like even now is still is is impacting especially teen girls um to, to the point. So again, you're kind of going from and the, to, and to be, and to be fair, it impacts teen boys just as deeply. Yeah. just shows up in different ways. It yeah. just shows up in different ways, but it shows up for all teenagers. It just shows up in different ways. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that, you know, again, <clears throat> not to go all political here, but uh, one of the, the things that has has proven why I think why the the um, the Trump crowd has had that that mindset has had such staying power is because a lot of the people didn't really have a group to belong to, and and it's you know you um, it, there there's a lot of I think anytime you can find a group of people that are willing to wear the same clothes and wear the same hats and oh, belonging know, go to... is a powerful thing. Oh, so, so. Belonging so... Is a... And I actually, that is one of the things that I've, and I've seen other folks, this isn't my original line of thinking. This is something I've seen written about beautifully by other folks mm -hmm. that one of the things that has driven that particular group um, especially in rural America, and you know, you're from a small town, mm -hmm. but that part of it is because a whole combination of things, but that one of the factors has been that Democrats and more centrist Republicans for generations have neglected and avoided dealing with rural issues, that rural communities yeah have been left out of the political process to a large degree and that their needs are not addressed and are not met. And even when they're screaming for like, hello, we need broadband out here too. Yeah. Or hello, we're having some issues with farming things and we need help with this, or this is not working or we're facing climate change or whatever the issue is that they've been so left out of government resourcing. Yep that it stands to reason and it is perfectly reasonable that they would band together around something that has at its core premise, burn it all down. Mm -hmm. Well, and it, just the one thing that I, having grown up in the, you know, in such a very small community, I mean, come on, 15 people in my high school graduating class. I was very fortunate that I never had the need for any um, medical service outside of having a broken arm fixed. Um, these days, what I'm seeing, especially again, now that I'm in Texas and not in Kansas, the, the number of hospitals, the rural hospitals that are closing without having some kind of assistance to keep medical practitioners closer into these communities. That's why so many people you know, are, are so, they're just struggling to stay there because 
what happens if I get sick? And right now we've got such an aging population that, so that they yeah. need, oh, it is anyway. And, and that's, yeah, I went down that path just recently <laughs> with somebody that there's a really shocking percentage of counties in Texas without a single primary care provider mm-hmm. and without a hospital that like there are places in Texas where you would have to drive more than an hour to get to the nearest medical care facility. Yeah. And if you're having a heart attack or a baby or well, God bless rural midwives. Um, yeah, we need more of those true. too. Uh, but it can be the difference between life and death. And frankly, farming and ranch work are two of the most dangerous occupations that exist. And so to have mm-hmm. people, even if the numbers aren't that great, to have people who are doing that kind of work without emergency medical care within a reasonable distance is just, it's, we can do better y'all. So yeah. Oh, I agree. I agree. <laughs> like, and that's just the physical yes. piece. That's not the mental health piece. I mean, totally. the number of farmers and ranchers who commit suicide because of the loneliness, because of the stress, because of the, yes. um, it is, I mean, I grew Although, up on a farm. It's, yeah, you know. It's like, yeah, but it's, will, it's gambling but I will, but I will on also, a large scale. But I will right. also tell you, my exposure to some of the rural communities in the Austin vicinity, like my ex-mother-in-law lives out near Fredericksburg. Uh And the community that she is part of and that their friends have out this little road where like they have this group of friends that like support each other and they gather together. And even like when there's personality conflicts or like whatever over the years, the degree to which they support each other was honestly like changed so much for me about the way I think about community. And it actually led to one of my favorite things about Orange. And that was making the distinction between communities of people that are friends, that you like, that you share an interest with, that you are with these people because you enjoy them. And functional community where you show up to support and materially help each other in some way, whether or not you agree with or like them. Mm -hmm. Because physically, you're there, they're there. You're human, you help. So if somebody's got their arms full and they're approaching the door, doesn't matter if you like their politics, you open the door. Right. You know what I mean? And like, Mm -hmm. and that is one of the kinds of community that I think we all could use more of that we have geographically proximal people who we know will help us if we need help without asking who'd you vote for. Right. You know, I have a very wide variety of friends. I have some that are way right, way left, a whole bunch in between, uh, pretty much over the gamut of the major religions. Um, and, and I have had so many people ask me, why are you friends with so-and-so? Why haven't you just blocked them? It's like, because that's just one aspect to them. Yes. And I am not going to just stop talking to somebody because of that one aspect that is that's cheating myself it's it's cheating them from the opportunity to share the rest of themselves but it's cheating me out of a different perspective and that's again now there are times when I've had to like put things on pause because like, okay, I'm, there's, there's a, there's a path that I'm, I'm not right. I'm not strong enough to deal with right now. The the Facebook (laughs) snooze button is one of their better inventions in my opinion, Yeah, where you can see somebody for 30 days. It's a beautiful thing when you're like, I just need to not see that right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I have a much different view on the world than many of my family members. Um, 
And it is, it is when I can remember that it's not my job to change their opinion, which I'm sad to say sometimes I do get kind of in that little mode. That's natural too. That's natural too. We all get that way. I love them and they love me. And so I have to always remember when, when things kind of get a little bit like weird like Mm -hmm. this, it's like, you know what? It's all about the love. It's really about connecting. So for me, it's always about connecting heart to heart. And that's why I have friends on, on all these different spectrums because I see their heart. And that doesn't mean that, you know, if, if, if there's a very bad behavior, obviously then the bad behavior is not rewarded, but, but the heart, I see that I feel it. And that's, that's why I, yeah. Anyway, I agree. So speaking about feeling and such, how do you discern when an idea or a person is the right, right path or right place to put your energy? Like where does curiosity tend to live in your body? So, well, okay. Well, and does it, and does it? Cause that's, that's, that's another thing. That's two different questions. Oh, uh, that's two different questions. So for me, curiosity, like when I'm curious about something, when I'm like, I want to see what's there, what's going on there. Um, for me, that is very much a felt sensation. Um, and it's funny because I'm now like, I find myself curious, like how do other people answer that question? Where do other people feel curiosity? That's interesting. I never thought about it before. Um, but I realized that for me, I feel it in two different places. I feel when I'm really intensely curious about something and I don't know why, but I feel it here. Like there's a tingling at the base of my skull. Oh, cool. That like, that I'm like, oh, wait, no, there's something there. It's like there's some sort of antenna that's like, hey, tell me more, tell me more, tell me more. But then I also feel it in my stomach, like right below my ribs, like diaphragm. Like I feel mm. like a warmth there. And if I've got both of those things happening, I'm like, oh, I've got to know. Like what? And that has actually led me to like some of my favorite stories and people that I've met are out of having responded to that sensation. Like I have a friend who I've been friends for frankly longer than most of my coworkers have been alive. That's become one of my favorite things. Uh, (laughs) There are things I've done longer than most of my coworkers have been alive. Um, That's what happens when you're chief mom. Exactly. It's okay. I, I actually genuinely do find that unbelievably delightful. Um, but like, I'll see somebody and I'll be like, hello, what is, what is, what is happening here? And I will ask about whatever the thing is that the curiosity seems centered around. And it leads to such gorgeous moments. Like a friend of mine who is now, he lives in Utah. He's an artist. He's an incredible artist. Like I swear to you, he is one of the most astonishing artists I've ever had the privilege to see their work in person. And I include wow. most of my museum visits in that. Um, wow. Okay, yeah. You have to tell me this person. I will share the Instagram with you later. Um, okay. And I met him because we were both waiting outside a vintage store in Los Angeles and he was holding a hanger with a really tiny black leather jacket on it. And he's not like, it was clearly way too small for him. Wasn't quite doll size, but it was this tiny little like motorcycle jacket. And I was like, why, what, (laughs) why do you, why are you standing here with this tiny leather jacket? And we've been friends ever since just because I was like, so when I feel that sensation, like it, it's really hard for me to not explore it. Um, but then in terms of how do I know if something is the right path to go down? And I, yes, I recognize for anyone who's watching who tends to live in the more rational sphere of things, I recognize that I am assigning the meaning, I am assigning meaning to things that do not have inherent meaning, but it pleases me to do so, and so I do. And that is, I love synchronicity as a signpost 
for heading down the right path. And for those who prefer a more rational approach to things, it can also be seen as using my own reticular activation system as confirmation of what my subconscious intends for me to pursue. But mostly, I just like delightful coincidences, and they always give me the sense that I am headed in the right direction. I love that. Um, one of the things that um, I've had, I've had uh, one of my clients long, quite a while ago, and so I kind of keep using this. After working with me with feng shui, um, she would just constantly send me texts like, oh, my gosh. We talk, you know how we talked about doing this and by, by, by moving this thing over here into this part of the house that we wanted to, to have, have this happen. Well, it happened. <laughs> and she's like, okay, so you are a coincidence creator. Beautiful. I like, I like being called a coincidence oh. or creator. Okay. I know it's this a beautiful is thing. A, a tiny tangent, but I did see a meme the other day that made me think of you. Oh, someone said it was something like, uh, Stop doing self-development work that leads you to blame yourself for everything. Learn feng shui and blame the furniture. Oh, that's funny. That's, yeah. And, you know, but the fact is everything that shows up in our physical environment is a direct response to the thoughts that we have, the mm -hmm. choices that we make, mm -hmm. you know, um, for those who are not able to see this video, they're just listening the, to the audio. Um, one of the things that I see behind Shelly is this beautiful mosaic pot. Yes. Oh, that's an orange relic. Oh, you recognize orange relic, but you chose this. It was, there was an accident. Things fell, pots broke, etc., And you had that you, you, you had someone there at orange who was like, oh, I know just what to do with this and surprised you with this incredibly beautiful mosaic pot mm -hmm. that, and the fact that you keep it around is giving the meaning of it's the memory of orange. It's the memory of a disaster, but more importantly, it's the reminder that often disasters create opportunity for growth and beauty. It's mm -hmm. really all about shifting that perspective. Um, and allowing yeah. other people to help. Oh yeah, yeah. Because I mm -hmm. would not have created that. I might've done something with the bits and pieces, but it wouldn't have been that. And yeah, no. the woman who did, I'm like, always grateful because yeah I love I I forgot that you would recognize this but I love that that's awesome yeah so we have time really for like one more kind of big question but the the thing that seems to be uh you know curiosity when we're little mm. how did you experience curiosity how was it was it rewarded was it punished was it stifled? And if so, if it was, how did you give yourself permission to say, yeah, that I'm leaving with little Shelly. I'm just going to love on little Shelly. How talk to talk me through that process for you. So I have always, always been intensely curious about everything and understanding and learning about the world around me and all of that. And when I was a kid, I learned very young that some people have more space for that than others. Um, God bless my mother. She went out and did things like bought a set of encyclopedias for a quarter at a garage sale. Never mind that they were published in like 1929 and were slightly out of date. <laughs> I still read the whole set cover to cover when I was in fifth grade. Uh, but the point is like I, for me, I ended up directing all my curiosity into books. Mm. I, I've always been, I mean, I taught myself to read before I was three years old and I've been doing it ever since. Um, wow. 
but it's largely because that's where I would go with my curiosity because I knew that like my mom was a safe place for my curiosity. She had looking back on it, she had way more patience than I probably do with my own kids curiosity. Um, so, you know, but not everybody has space for it. And some people get downright angry when you ask too many questions, like even teachers at school where it turns into just do it. Mm -hmm. And they don't always appreciate, but why? (laughs) Why should I do that? So yeah, books were my salvation for my curiosity and they still are. They still are. I, you, bookshelf behind me. I've got so many books and it's a fraction of the ones I would have if I hadn't had purges over the years. Purging is good because that means that other people will get the opportunity to go to half price books or go to Goodwill or look at the garage sale and buy their own encyclopedias for a quarter. So I'm glad to know that I wasn't the only kid who loved to read the encyclopedias. We had an ancient set at our house too. Again, the youngest of eight kids, there's all kinds of strange things that came, but I read those. What year was yours? Do you remember? Uh trying to think actually it was, it was older than yours. I think they were fairly new at that point, maybe 58. So it could even be 60. Here's the thing that you probably ran into in yours that was so delightful in mine also was that like they were published before we had gone to the moon. Oh, wow. So in the entry on the moon were all the speculations about there might be life on the moon. There might be water on the moon. There might be a whole nother civilization on the moon. It might be made of cheese. We don't know. (laughs) Oh, that's great. And that was just, and between that and reading about countries that didn't exist by the time I was reading them, like those were my two favorite things. That's, that's, but that's so cool that you were able to cross-reference how, and to see how information changes as one learns more. And it probably gave you permission to change your mind as you learned more. It does. Do you have time for one more little? Yes. Okay. So, and this sort of intersects with both my curiosity and things happening in the world right now. So there was an article published in the New York Times within the last week or so called Being 13. It is a beautiful piece of journalism where the writer followed three 13-year-olds over the course of a year and Mm. just tracked their social media and their friendships and their just how their lives go and wrote about it. And we were talking about this at work and Greta, our head of product, who is also a very curious human, uh, didn't have the link to it and so searched for the article and found an article of the same name, Being 13, also published in the New York Times in 1998. Oh, wow. So this isn't reading an article someone now reminiscing about what it was like then. It was written by a journalist in 1998 talking about what adolescence was like in 1998. And the compare and contrast between those two articles brought me to my knees because one of the primary differences was how in 1998, it talks about how as parents, we have photo albums full of family photos from when our children are small and our kids are in every photo. And then they turn 13 and they go off with their friends and they disappear from the photo albums for years because they're off exploring the world and making friendships and learning who they are and trying on new identities and doing all of these things. And they don't want it documented. It's awkward. They don't want it. Like they don't want to be there. They know that how they are right now is temporary. So they're not documenting it. In contrast with now where the sentiment is generally, if it didn't happen on Insta, it didn't happen. 
and every moment is documented and there is no forgetting. Yeah. And just what does that change and what have we gained and what have we lost in that? And so just that point of comparison just floored me. Wow. That's a perfect place, though, to end because I imagine that in 20 more years, 25 more years, they'll do another on, you know, being 13, and then we'll have the rest of that comparison. Shelly, thank you so much for being such a wonderful guest. Um, we'll have to do this again some other time. I will chat right. with you anytime. Thank you so much. It's an honor. Have a great rest of your day.